even though, Seth, I told you I would not forget to push the button. I did forget to push the button, but I was only two seconds late. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 28. I love the book of Romans. I love uh, this specific chapter, chapter 8, which is one of the reasons why I chose this chapter to preach out of when we were together for uh, the Christmas Eve service. But I love the book of Romans. I love the Romans chapter 8. I think the book of Romans is one of the one of the uh, most important books of the Bible. They're all important, obviously, but I think Romans is very important. And I think this chapter specifically of Romans chapter 8 gives us so much word and truth to live by each and every day. And so I, I love it. Um, I will admit to you that um, as we talk about these verses, verses 18 to 28, I may not hit on something that you might think was of importance. Um, there is so much in this passage that you could come at it from a number of different ways. I'm going to come at it this morning in the way that uh, God led me through it, which is specifically of how do we think about suffering in the world today? How do we think about pain? Well, where did it come from? Why does it exist? What should be our attitude in as believers, what should be our attitude in response to suffering and pain? And everybody can relate. And I will tell you this, just to clear kind of the, the playing field for us all, don't think about these words as they are spoken to us as you have to be a martyr put to death in order for this to be true in your life. Because we are all part of God's creation. Therefore, we are all subject to suffering. We are all subject to pain. And so in that way, you know, what I might suffer from is not the same as what you might suffer from and vice versa. God is able to bring about things in each of our lives that are our own cross to bear and He is able to reach each and every one of us with His grace and His mercy specifically to help us through those struggles that exist in our own life that we have to go through. So in that way, you know, I want us to think about these words, these verses, specifically as it, it relates to our own circumstances, our own trials, our own uh, just weaknesses, okay, in that way, okay? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So let's, uh, let's, le- let's read these words. Romans chapter... 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject, subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subject, subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, 
We wait for it with patience. Verse 28, Likewise, I'm sorry, 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Great chapter. Great, great verses. I want you to notice a couple of things. Um, this, in this passage, we have some declarations or facts. I, I like to think of that word for specifically as Paul saying, I'm going to give you some things that are facts. They're, they're factual. Almost statements or declarations of fact. Notice right after the word for. And there are five fours. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 20. For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly be because of Him who subjected it, subjected it in hope. 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but even we ourselves, I'll paraphrase, but even we ourselves who are Christians also. 24. For in this hope we were saved. And we're going to come back to that one as we end in the, in the very end. Declarations. Those are statements of, statements of fact. Now, I will point us back just a little bit first before we go into this topic of pain and suffering. What is the, the context? In this chapter specifically, we think back on the lessons that have already been taught before this morning. You go all the way back to the beginning of the chapter, chapter 8, verse 2. We have been set free from sin and death. Verse 3, that's in verse 2, verse 3, through Jesus Christ. Verse 10, if Christ is in you, now you have kind of this war that wages within you. You've been set free from the body of sin and you've been given the Spirit. Verse 11, this Spirit gives us life. Verse 14 and 15, if so, that we have that Spirit, we are the sons of God whereby we can cry out to Him Loving Father. Abba Father. And then it brings us right to verse 17 specifically. And you look at it there, those words. And if children, it's all going to be good news for us here forward. No more pain and suffering. Isn't that what it says? Actually, it says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Now, I'm going to get a little bit ahead of myself here, but I'm going to point to something and then we're going to come back to it a little bit later. Because you might ask yourself, as we read through 18-28 to and it talks about suffering and it talks about trial and pain, 
And then verse 17 says, if we suffer, specifically those words, provided we suffer with him, you might ask yourself, what kind of suffering then is all the following verses spoken of? And I don't think it's particularly the type of suffering that's being spoken of, but a couple of words jumped out to me in this context in that verse 17 that says, provided we suffer with him. And you keep that in mind. We're going to come back to it roundabout way. But you might want to circle those words, provided we suffer, not suffer, but provided we suffer with Him. Alright, so let's be practical for a second. Okay? I made a statement that you know this idea of suffering and pain is not just for the martyrs who might be put to death, but let's be really practical. How much suffering and pain is in the world today? And I will go to uh, what it seems to be in our day and age the fact of all popular opinion or statement of fact in the world, and that's the Gallup polls. For whatever reason, it's all the rage lately. Gallup, what Gallup finds in their polling of, of all of humanity by asking questions. And Gallup actually produced a poll. On, they seem to produce a poll on everything, so no surprise. They actually produce a poll on the state of well-being. And they, they actually ask a series of questions and part of what they're getting to is what is your state of well-being? And one of the, one of the questions specifically they ask is um, about in relation to how they rate their lives on average on a scale of being 1 to 10. And they define the percentage of those who answered it, 1 being obviously the least and the 10 being the, my very best life. And they ask them the question of that now and what you would expect then also in the future. And they look at those things and, and, they, and they put a label on anyone that is four and below as those who are currently in a state of extreme suffering. And this poll that they recently conducted was across 1.25 million people over 150 countries. Or in their way of statistical validity, um, they felt it added up to a credibility that would equal basically 90% of the population. And in that suffering index, as they call it, they ask the respondents the question of their perception of where they stand now and in the future. And this is what they found. 14% of the world's population currently express an enormous dissatisfaction with life. So that's one of the things they found. 14% in extreme, not, not some dissatisfaction, in extreme dissatisfaction with life. Um, and, it, and they stated in some of their findings of, you know, kind of why those things would be. Some of it, they believe, comes from people's perception, which is flawed by their expectation or a desire that well, their well-being and prosperity should be better than what it is. Because there's a little bit of a conflict in our day and age. And you hear some actually talk about the fact that at no point in time has our history had a lower degree of poverty. Unemployment, even in this country, is at an all-time low. Those state, that state of prosperity has been increasing. More education that, that is available. Access to health care. And there's a thought that as those things go up, people's level of suffering and well-being would get better. And it's not. And why would that be the case? And that's their conflict that they're trying to wrestle with as they kind of think through this, this poll and what they found. They found that 35% suffer from extreme stress. 35% of the world's population currently suffer from extreme stress. And they say that 
close to 30% suffer from extreme pain, which I find very interesting, especially in my current occupation. <clears throat> Explanations are uh, by them that the steep decline in the world's poverty didn't meet people's expectation. They thought it would bring them more satisfaction, worldly speaking, than it has. The economic average wage, access to health care, that have not improved enough in their minds. And so there are the claims of global progress versus this rise in suffering and well-being. Um, and these two seem to disagree with one another. And they said this, one, one of the analysts actually said this when thinking through the study, and I quote, Perhaps increases in wealth alone can't produce the changes in social and political institutions that are needed to reduce widespread discrimination, inequality, violence, and other violations of human rights. Or in other words, what he's saying is this charge, if you will, um, in our day and age toward um, social reforms, you know, equality. They're driven by this thought that if we can cure that, everybody's well-being and health improves. When actually we know that um, the, the, the cure is the gospel. Amen. The cure is not going to be found in social reforms or in prosperity or in increases in wealth or in decreases in unemployment. The only satisfaction anyone will ever find is in Jesus Christ and the joy and the meaning in life that God can give. So we find the world today going in the wrong direction and, and no, no surprise, right? So let me make it even more practical to you, okay? Um, because uh, it would not be fair to me to, share, to not share something that I actually know something about. Um, this is how it relates to even the world around us. You heard, heard of the opioid epidemic. I'm sorry to my family. I, they, they have heard a lot of this you know, from me. But, you know, so... You hear this though, right? Opioid epidemic. It kills you know, more than 130 people every single day in the U.S. In the U.S., we have 5% of the world's population and we consume over 80% 80, 80 of the world's supply of, of opiates. And we're not talking about heroin. We're talking about prescription medication. The 130 people that I talked about that die every day died from prescription overdose or abuse. Now, what would you take an opioid for? pain. Some time back, uh, more than 10 years ago, it was accepted into popular medicine that the fifth vital sign, so when you think about vital signs, vital signs being you know, your um, oxygen level, your um, blood pressure, um, those things as vital signs. In, order, in other words, what, is, what are those vital signs if we're going to say, what is your state of physical well-being? And they defined that pain would actually be the fifth vital sign. And that's where all the little images came from. That when you're asked by your doctor, point to which one you are. How much pain do you have? Frowning sign or you know, the one that says, I'm really happy over here. And then they introduced this, this idea of we're going to introduce surveys to patients. And it set up an expectation in a patient's mind that they should actually be free from pain. And you had the introduction of 
opioids being generally accepted, which were once only given to cancer patients who were actually in the state. You probably could teach this whole lesson, Denise. Who were, who were, who were given those state of medications because they were in such a degree of, of pain to now they're given for things like wisdom teeth being removed. You can get a bottle of oxycodone, um, Vicodin, hydrocodone, any number of those, those things, and you don't, you don't necessarily relate the name to the drug, but they contain an opiate. And people can become addicted to that. And what's even more dangerous is that an opiate, you become naive to it over time. So the level of morphine dosage has to go up to deliver, deliver the same level of systematic relief that it once had, and you all of a sudden then become addicted to it. It is most prevalent, prevalently... Uh, it's, 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 pre, it's prescribed most often to those who suffer from chronic pain. And chronic pain is actually the, the coming together of my physical and my mental well-being that produces a diagnosis of chronic pain some six months later after an injury. And so you'd match that up with a population in a, in a people who are in some level of pain or discomfort and it becomes a very dangerous thing. So if you want to know more about that, I, I could go on and on and on, but we're going to move on. Um, so... There is a danger, though. Here's what I wanted to leave you with, with all of that. There is a practicality to this idea of suffering and pain. There is this, this danger of masking a symptom rather than addressing a cause. If you think about a drug, that, an opiate, it only masks a symptom. It doesn't address the cause. And if you take it long enough, it actually produces a pain signal to your brain. Hmm. Some causes can be treated. Others, this idea of pain... Others are to be understood in the light of God's purpose and in faith. So let's go back. What are the causes of suffering? Or you know, how would we define suffering? I'll give you a couple of definitions of suffering. Suffering, according to dictionary.com, would be to undergo, be subjected to, or endure pain, distress, injury, loss, or anything unpleasant. So that would be dictionary.com. I recently picked up a book um, uh, just recently when Shannon and I were out by Elizabeth Elliot that uh, was about is there a purpose in suffering? It's a good good book and because you look for those examples of people who have actually suffered through pain and what Christian people and what did they learn in that journey? What did God teach them? And, and she defined pain this way. Suffering is having what I do not want and wanting what I do not have. Now, if you think about you know, the introduction of humanity and creation after the fall, and we all tend to live in that life of having what I do not want and wanting what I cannot have. I thought that was an interesting definition. It would probably cover pretty much anything that you might um, struggle with today, no matter how, how severe or, or not. So suffering, if we think about it, suffering can be physical. It can be an injury. It can be pain. It can be sickness. It could also be uh, mental, mental well-being. Um, one could suffer from anxiety, depression, and worry. You know, those sometimes those are more uh, hard to, those are harder to deal with than the physical, right? 
if you're if you're suffering through or you have a tendency to suffer with some of those things. It can be spiritual. Um, you know, verse five. Um, notice in verse five of chapter eight. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So it can be spiritual in a way that, you know, once we're saved, we're no longer, um, or we don't get rid of that natural tendency of the flesh. Now you actually have the introduction of the two warring one with another. So you could have suffering and pain that's simply due to the fact that. I know what I ought to do and my flesh doesn't want to do it. We've heard, we heard Paul say that better than anyone, right? So suffering can actually be a spiritual um, issue. It can be caused by nature, certainly. Um, and this creates great questions in our day and age. Why are there issues of disease? The coronavirus is the one most common right now. Mass hysteria about the coronavirus. Um, despite that actually way more people have died from flu symptoms alone um, at this current day and age than have died by the coronavirus. But nonetheless, why do, why do disease, diseases exist? Storms, hurricanes, earthquakes, floods, fire. So um, certainly suffering um, or disaster can come by natural causes. It can, and I'm using that in quotes, natural causes. It can also become be caused by by other things or by others, by each other. Issues of oppression, inequality, hate, right? Physical abuse. Those those things obviously can cause suffering and cause and can cause pain. So, you know, what kind of sufferings are we talking about or is Paul talking about? Well, I think he's talking about all of them. I think he's talking about any instance of suffering or pain that currently exists in our in our day and age. And I think one of the uh, clues to understanding that is when he says in verse 20, for the creation was subject to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So I think it's any and all of those things. And I don't think it's the point of verse 17 to discuss or to talk about the suffering specifically that you must endure, but it's, well, you are enduring suffering and pain in this life. If you endure it with Christ, you're going to be in a different place. You're going to address it differently. Amen. And it's going to bring you to a different destination. Certainly, that is... Uh, when verse 17 talks about that we will be heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with, with Him. So let me say it a different way. I don't believe that the point is in the type of suffering, but in the possession through the suffering, because suffering for us all is inevitable. Mm -hmm. Suffering comes to us all, and verse 17 says, provided we suffer with Him. It doesn't say like Him. We were not given Christ's cross to bear. We were given our own cross, which is the reason why Christ says, take up your cross and follow me. It doesn't say take up mine. Interesting thought though, isn't it? I think it is um, this idea just pointed apart a little bit more. What does it mean to suffer with Him? 
It means that we would agree with the psalmist who said in chapter 16, verse 1, Preserve me, O God, for in You I take refuge. Regardless of whatever difficulty is coming upon us, it's that attitude of, Preserve me, O God, for in You I take refuge. Just wondering, uh, the suffering, we could not uh, experience the suffering that Christ went through. Uh, mm. But we do go through suffering, but I still think that it's a spiritual suffering, uh, persecution of our faith, yeah. uh, the way the world is compared to the way we are, and how we handle it and how we get through it. Yeah. Uh, it's it's pretty much of a, to me it's pretty much of a cross that we have to carry. Yeah. It's our own cross. Yeah. And uh, there's physical suffering too, of course, and we, and how we cry out to Christ to help us with the physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain. But I, I think it's more spiritual than anything else yeah. as how we handle our spiritual walk. Yeah, yeah. Yep, good addition. Good addition. Isaiah 12, 2. Um, just pointing out other passages of Scripture that in ways that we should, um, with Him, endure suffering or difficulties. Isaiah 12:2 says, "Behold, God is my salvation; I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation." I mean, if you think about it, boy, you think about um the stories that we have in the Bible of those who came before us and those who faced difficulty. You know, you think of Joseph you think of Noah, who built an ark in extreme ridicule and opposition. Um, you know, you think of David, um, as we've been hearing many messages um, of his difficulties, right, before he ever reached the promise that God had given him of becoming king. The Bible's just full of them. And much of the Psalms we have are of those individuals crying out in their dependence in, in the God of their salvation. Psalm 55.22 Cast your burden upon the Lord and He will sustain you. And in this part, He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Yeah, good one. Not that we won't suffer, but we're not going to be... He won't permit us to sort of be moved beyond His realm of sovereign control and peace and hope. And yeah. What's that address again? Yeah. Psalm 55.22 Yeah. 22. Good, good. Excellent. And interestingly enough, I think in the the stories that you mentioned in the, in the Old Testament, <clears throat> even with the coming of the Messiah and the reconciliation he brought, it didn't diminish for those afterwards. In fact, it probably got worse. Mm. And martyrdom was a, was, a, was a routine outcome for, for all of the apostles. Right. Uh, and so, Jesus coming and bringing that reconciliation to the world yeah. didn't yeah. write things completely at that point. I mean, it just continues on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <coughs> so uh, we we come upon a question though in our mind though, right? Mm-hmm. And the question is this: you know, so why does suffering exist in the first place? Why have it if it causes discomfort? That would be a question that would probably be out there on the street if we went out with the microphone. Why have it if it causes discomfort? And often you see that asked. How can a loving God, you fill in the blank, right? 
So you think about that, and, and I think, you know, for us, if we really build some of that foundation right around verse 20, and you go back there, verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So I'd ask you this question. Um, you know, I'll give it to you this way for sake of time. I'll give it to you in a multiple choice question because it really can be only three, three questions when you think about who created suffering or who created this idea of uh, that verse for the creation was subjected to futility. Who did it? Who's the who that's being referred to there? There can only be one of three answers. Either we did, or meaning creation did, humankind did, either we did in our sin, we subjected creation to futility. So either we, or it is the devil, that old serpent, by causing that sin, um, that temptation in the Garden of Eden, did he subject all creation to futility? Or it would be God. Now which would you choose of those three? What do you think? We. God. We. Okay, so we got some we's, we got some gods, we got some. God. Excellent, Michelle. Say that loudly. She says, there's a. She says, just read the verse. What's it say? Say it. Yeah. Um, Romans 5, 2, 3, and, uh, yeah, 3, 4, and 5. Um, suffering produces perseverance, character, and character hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so first of all, um, you know, we absolutely agree that that verse pretty much defines for you the who of who, who, who subjected it to futility. It, the, uh, the person who subjected it to, fu- to futility did so in hope. So therefore, the devil's out. That's not the case. And in that verse, it says, sub, uh, creation wasn't subjected to futility willingly. So it wasn't creation. So the only answer can be the one who had hope in the outcome. Now, when we think of that, um, you know, I'm going to talk about hope here in a little bit, but it's a different hope than you know, we might have in mind, a wishful thinking. Um, but God is the right answer. God is the one who subjected all creation to futility in hope. And that's how we can know that. And why and in what hope did he act? Well, verse 21 tells us in verse 21, um, notice there, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So you have there the, the, the uh, difference between um, bondage to corruption and freedom of the glory of the children of God. So he did so in order to produce that. Now, all of creation is under the curse. That is what it's referring to here. All of creation is under the curse. And if we go back to when this actually happened, and do that because I think it's helpful. Go back to Genesis chapter 5, verse 14. And we will see the, in the specific act of the subjecting creation to futility. 
chapter 5, verse 14. Right at, and this is right after the sin. Um, no, I'm wrong. Sorry. Hang on. Let's go back. I have to know my Bible a little better. There it is. 3. 3. 3.14 The Lord God said to the serpent, verse three, verse thir- chapter 3, verse 14, is after the sin, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed, the idea of futility, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to the dust you shall return. So there is the curse on all of creation because of the fall. And God did that in hope that one day Jesus Christ being referred to in that idea of the serpent and the heel um, would actually happen, that first spot of the Gospel message appearing. So in hope, in this idea of hope, it's not like we use the word of wishfulness, but this idea of God subjected it in hope is actually in a looking forward certainty. Or in other words, He did so in the knowledge of Christ, the cross, and the resurrection. So he said, because of sin, God subjected all of creation to futility in the certainty that that would be the answer and the cure uh, for that initial, um, that initial error. So let us go for a little further in the purpose of suffering. When we think about subject to futility and hope, I would tell you a statement that there is a purpose God has in pain. Um, we should not run from pain. We don't desire difficulties, but the things that we learn through those circumstances become life-changing for us. I, I, I really believe, I'm sure you do as well, the times that we experience God's presence in our lives and the times that He teaches us, He does so in those moments of extreme need, not so much in those great times on the mountaintop when things are going so well, but in our brokenness and in our contriteness and in our lack of ability to do anything in face of the circumstance, we have to have faith in God to bring us forward and to put those things in a perspective that makes sense from a godly perspective. And as He does so in those times, those times for us become of great blessing. So in the, I, I have experienced them. I know you do as well. Hopefully you're with me this morning when you think back on them and say, I do not wish 2020 to have them. But if they happen, I do not dare run from them because I know there will be great blessing in them. 
Where in the Bible, think of this with me this morning, when we think about what the purpose is in pain or why does you know, evil exist, because that would be the world's claim. You know, how can God exist and evil exist at the same time? Where in the Bible can you actually find one of the greatest examples of suffering? Jesus Christ. Yep, Jesus obviously. Yep. Job. Job. Somebody said Job. And some in in suffering realize that sometimes suffering can exist because we bring it upon ourselves. There is a biblical principle of what you sow, therefore you shall also reap. Now that's a biblical principle. That's one that's one way about which sometimes suffering and pain do happen. A second though is sometimes it has nothing to do with something that we have caused, but it's simply for our discipline and our training. That would be the second. And the third is sometimes it exists I would say this is always the case, but it also exists because it is for our good as believers. Certainly verse 28 tells us that. And it, it is for God's glory. Right? So, for our discipline and our training, because maybe we have done something or, or humanity has done something that has brought it upon us or um, in all-encompassing, it is for our good and, and God's glory. Now, in the book of Job, you have a situation where you had, Job is referred to as one of the books of wisdom. Um, it's, this, uh, it's this thought of you actually get a chance to see a nar- the narrative of individuals struggling with these principles and trying to make sense of it. So you have this thought of there is only one God, monotheism. There is only one God. There is no other. All things were created by Him and and for him, there is one God. Yet at the same time, suffering and evil exist in the world. Furthermore, you have what Job and God refers to as Job was a blameless man. So how do you have that triangle of, of fact around there is only one God, suffering and evil does exist, Job's a blameless man, and here you have in the middle this issue of suffering. And how do you make sense of it all? And certainly, the book of Job goes through this whole thought process from different perspectives that would give us a better understanding of, you know, kind of why suffering would exist and why it happens. And let me give you a few things um, as I was studying through the book of Job that I hope will, will make sense to you and I hope will be helpful to you. But we encounter a man and his friends trying to make sense of suffering in God's world. And it is called the contemplative wisdom. That's what it's actually called. Or in other words, trying to make sense of it. It's it's the idea of righteous living always, or righteous living does not always produce the absence of misery. Because you have this idea of blameless Job, but he was also inflicted with great hardship. And how can that be the case. And in the book of Job, you have different perspectives that show you why suffering exists. First of all, you have that of the author. You have him rolling back the curtains and you actually see Satan giving the, giving the leash to go and bring that hardship on Job. So from the author's perspective, suffering can be brought about by 
a satanic uh, means. From Job's perspective, his, his perspective of suffering is that it's a great puzzle. How do you make sense of it? He can't. So from, a, from Job's perspective, uh, suffering is a puzzle. From the friend's perspective, the friend's perspective is that suffering is as a penalty for some wrong he must have done. The word that is used is uh, retributive theology. It's this idea that because you're suffering, you must have done something to have deserved it. That's Job's friend's perspective. Eliehu's perspective is that suffering purifies. It purifies for shortcomings. And then you have actually God's perspective that God is providential and He is in control of it all. Now I'll ask you, and it's a little bit of a trick question, but which of those perspectives is right? They're all right. They're all exactly right. The problem is that truth must be balanced and if we have too much weight on one, it can be wisdom misapplied. So that's the problem in the book of Job. You have wisdom being misapplied. This idea that, Job, you're suffering because you must have done wrong, that's uh, simply a mathematical formula. Uh, suffering exists. You're, you're under the, the curse of God's hand currently right now, and therefore it must be because of some wrong you have, you have done. And, and meanwhile, that is not the case at all. Um, you know, regardless of what Job feels, regardless of what his friends say, God's message to Job throughout the book of Job, it is a confirmation that he has it all under control. Bad things can happen to good people. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Bad things can happen to good people. And when it does, we must rest in the goodness of God and know that He has it all under, under His sovereign control. By the way, that idea of sowing and reaping, it is through much of the Old Testament. It is um, what much of uh, the covenant on Mount Sinai was uh, constructed around. You find that in Deuteronomy chapter 28. You find it certainly in Leviticus chapter 26. You find it in the New Testament, Galatians 6 7. That which you sow, that you shall also reap. You find it in 1 Peter 3 3 12. So there is an idea of um, certainly one reason for suffering can be because um, we bring it upon ourselves, but sometimes it has nothing to do with something we have done. It may actually be for our good and for God's glory. So. This is. Please. You have to kind of make sure that you don't tie that into karma. Say more. You know, because, you know, that's. That, um, you know, is a mindset that's kind of almost forced on us, like from society, that, you know, like if you do something wrong, there's going to be some kind of. Something's going to happen to you because some chance thing is going to happen to you because you did something wrong. Right. Where it's God is sovereign, and right. you know that it's um, and the things like I, I was looking at Psalm one nineteen. There's a couple of verses that um, that really um, have already you know stuck out with me. There's like before I was afflicted, I went astray, and um, 
but now I keep your your command. So you know our our afflictions a lot of times will keep us in line. And that, you know, so it's a sovereignty of God that keeps us keeps us in in line. You know that our afflictions are not. You know that's that's what we look at. Like our afflictions as Christians, we're not we're not a, a, immune to them. They're going to have a purpose because God has yes. a purpose in their life. Yes. Yes. And, you know, then it goes down farther. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. So, mm. you know, so it's like, you know, it's God's sovereignty that, that we look for. Yes, 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 absolutely. And certainly that is what verse 28 also brings to our light that that all things Paul, work together Paul for good. Is yeah. perfect one to say that. You know, I, I yeah. don't think anybody, but you know, Paul can say that. You know, yes. All things work together for good when you read what's happened to Paul. To Paul. You know. Yes, absolutely. Yep, yep, absolutely. Great, great addition. Good. Um, okay, so let's go back uh, a little bit. Okay, let's, let's rewind just a little bit. Um, so I said, I said before that Sometimes suffering can exist for our discipline and for our training. Okay, I think uh, Hebrews points that out really well. Look in look in Hebrews chapter twelve. Sometimes difficulties exist for our teaching and for our training. That's the point. Hebrews twelve one. So if all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. Yet, maybe sometimes I'm under difficulty and it's not because of something that I brought about from myself. What can actually be the purpose of it? That's the perspective. And you find in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So a couple things, just notice there, um, that we continue to run with endurance. If you think about an athlete, if you think about um, you know some of what you can learn by difficulties and struggles, an athlete will learn from losses. Okay, I'll give you a very good practical point. David Ives, last, last week in a major tournament, um, lost um, his match because he sh- took a shot with his arms too far out and he got caught and put right to his back. Yesterday, David Ives faced the, and we said coming out of it, if, one, if the only thing we learned by that loss is that you've got to make just a little bit of an adjustment and you're right there. Yesterday, David Ives threw a different tournament ends up facing that same kid in the um, to, to take third place. And he beats him because he took advantage of the learning. Now, that's just a you know, simple practical example today, right? But I try to, I'm, those, you know, I'm a coach. I pound more that you probably win from your losses more than you ever will from your wins. So the same thing in life, same thing in life applies. Um, through difficulty and through hardship, we're going to learn way more from those difficulties grounded in the Word of God, right, than we're ever going to learn from just in the, in the victories alone. But we need to continue and run with endurance that race that is set before us. Now, verse 3, consider him who has endured, uh, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself 
so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. Uh, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. All right, so before we think, woe is me so much, we are still alive. <laughs> we haven't resisted to the point of, of blood. Um, David has probably heard me say before, um, when a wrestler is crying, I'll say, that injury is a long way from your heart. Get up, keep going, right? So it's this idea of, listen, I, sometimes I think of that's Paul's reaction here. Stop your whining. Um, you haven't resisted to the point of shedding blood. And, and, you, and, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Now here it is. Now think of this in the context of being called children of God, heirs of Christ. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. And think of that word discipline. Sometimes we have a negative connotation in our mind when we think of discipline. It's actually referred to more in the same way that Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way he ought to go, that when he is old he will not depart from it. The idea there in that discipline is the training. Even though that hardship may be, it might feel to us like it's unfair, Cast aside the unfairness and we're probably going to be taught something through it and we can, take, um, it, it, we can take comfort in knowing that if God's teaching us, He loves us. My son, do not regard lightly, and I'll change that word, the training of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastens every son whom He receives. So that idea that our suffering or our pain or our difficulty in life can be for our training. Other parts of the Bible, you would find that it's for our instruction in righteousness. It's for our sanctification. It's for our growth. It's for our development. It's for our greater encouragement of faith. Based on time... um, I made, I made the point too though that suffering can exist simply for the glory of God. I think what points that out so very well, if you remember when the disciples were walking with Jesus and they walked by the man born blind from his birth. Chapter 9 of John. And the disciples said to Jesus, Teacher, Master, who sinned this man or his parents that he would be born blind? And Jesus responded, Neither this man nor his parents, but that the glory of God would be revealed in him. Wow. I think that when you think about why sometimes suffering or pain or difficulty exists, that idea that it, it's for the glory of God and as God gains glory, it is for our good that we come to know who He is and that we've, and we, and we, and we then have faith given to us by Him. It can be for our good and ultimately He gains all the glory from it. So what should be our attitude as we end here? What should be our attitude towards suffering? Um, 
our attitude towards suffering. I came across this quote. It's kind of a puzzler, but you think about it for a second. It's, it's by uh, Blaise Pascal. Let me find it here. Blaise Pascal, who was uh, a theologian of sorts. He was also a mathematician. About, about misery or suffering, he said this, um, the knowledge of God without man's misery causes pride. The knowledge of man's misery without God causes despair. The knowledge of Jesus Christ provides a middle course between, uh, because in Him we find both God and our misery. Isn't that interesting? I'll say that again for you real quick because I see some with puzzled looks. The knowledge of God without man's misery causes pride. The knowledge of man's misery without God causes despair. The knowledge of Jesus Christ provides a middle course because in Him we find both God and our misery. Amazing. The glory of the Gospel. What should our attitude be towards suffering? Well, certainly Paul points out that our attitude should be the fact that it is um, an unpleasant circumstance that's only temporary. You get that idea right out of verse 18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing, compared, uh, comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So one is uh, my unpleasant circumstance is temporary. Obviously, there are other passages as well that we could go to. Um, additionally, my destination or the glory that will be revealed in Christ and even in us both is far better. I, I find it interesting that he uses those words are not worth comparing. You think about those words. Not, not you can't compare. They're not even worth com- trying to compare. So, that is obviously another part of it. Um, there is this also this idea of um, I'm, I'm not ultimately, at, I have not arrived at my destination, right? So, God's going to train me. He's going to teach me through this. Ultimately, I'm going to get to a far better, better place. Um, notice in verse 18, um, actually no further, uh, we know, 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves um, having the first fruits of the Spirit inwardly grown. Notice, um, waiting as we wait eagerly for the adoptions of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So, it is this idea of we have it now, adoptions whereby we are called sons, and we don't yet fully have it, that is what we are waiting for um, in hope. Um, but what should our attitude be in suffering? One day we will arrive at that full destination and be rid of it. Additionally, we should have faith in God's future grace toward us. You see that in verse... Uh, notice in t- verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees. So just a little little bit of, of, of something I want you to take with you is this idea that sometimes we think of faith and we think of God's grace toward us as sometimes 
past tense sometimes, right? The sins that I've committed and God's, um, you know, he, he's placed them on himself. They're gone. Um, I believe on the cross, you know, and we, have, we, can te- we can tend to take a little bit more of a past tense when faith is so much more of a, a present and a future tense for us. There are examples of things that he has brought us through. We, our faith is held firm in the fact that the same God who has brought us through those things will help us through those things that might exist tomorrow. And I have not fully yet arrived, but my faith in the grace of God is that He will bring me there. You see what I mean? So, that, that we could do a whole Sunday school lesson on that alone, but that idea of verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now, if hope is seen, it's not hope, but for who hopes for what he sees... But if we hope for what we do not see, that's what we were being referred to here. That we wait for with patience. Additionally, um, what should our attitude be in the face of suffering? We should have confidence in the Spirit's presence and help. That's that whole part that we went through where it talks about sometimes we're in such agony or we're so lost that we don't even know what to pray. Have you been there? This, this passage actually says the Spirit does and He can intercede for you. Sometimes in your prayer, maybe it's actually admitting, God, I'm not quite sure what I need to ask for at this point in time, but you know what's best. And know that the Spirit is able to actually intercede for you. So confidence in the Spirit's presence and in His help, that's another attitude of how we should address suffering. Additionally, that our, we should address suffering knowing that it is for our good and His glory. Certainly in, in, in verse 28. Now I will point out to us also that this warning that there is a condition found in verse 28. It's twofold. I actually think it's part of the same exact condition. But that verse does not say for everybody all things are going to work together for good. That verse says for those who love God who are called... Now, you're not going to love God unless you have first been awakened, called. If you have been called, if He has changed you, if He has converted you, you will have a different attitude toward God and that of love. And if that has happened, you can be confident in knowing that even though we might not understand why something exists and it's hard, we can have confidence in knowing that it will all work together for good and for His glory for our good and for His glory. The last thing that I will give you, let's go to where our brother pointed out. You said, Paul as an example, certainly if we think about him in the face of suffering, we must be able to take something from his perspective. Right? Something like that. Turn over with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Because in this idea of how, what should our attitude be be in the face of suffering, I just want us to go and say, what was Paul's example? Paul wrote Romans, no doubt, in verse in chapter 14 of 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, verse 7, you're going to hear sentiments of something of the same mind. Verse 7, Paul says of chapter 4, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to know that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. 
persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest or in other words, made known in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to the death of Jesus' sake for the, the, the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh so death worketh in us but in you, in you life. In other words... What, what we find Paul saying here particularly is we have been tested, we have been tried, we have been put in prison, we have been beaten often to the point of death, but there's a purpose in it. And Paul specifically in his hope here says through our testimony you might know Jesus Christ. So one of our attitudes toward suffering might simply be the testimony and the example that we give toward those who are without because we can have hope in a, in a God who has control and is sovereign and we believe that He works all things according to His good and to Him we serve. Sometimes our attitude towards suffering is Maybe this will help me to help another person through a difficulty. Maybe they will see that you know this is uh, this hardship that I have endured. I've endured in this way simply because of what God has been able to do um, with me. And sometimes it can be you know for a testimony. So that's very long. I'm sorry. I do apologize. I might have gotten carried away. Let's close in prayer and then we'll get upstairs. Lord, thank you for your word. Um, you obviously say it so much better than I. I've just simply tried to point in different places what you have shown me. I pray that you would make it real to us and, um, and we'll continue to think on these things. Please help our brother as he preaches upstairs now. And we ask for your blessing upon it. And thank you for your love. And thank you that in, the, in the knowledge that we can have knowing that regardless of what our circumstance, we might not understand it, but we can have confidence knowing that you are in control and that all things work together for good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Very good. Can I ask you a quick question? Yeah. I got uh, the different perspectives.